from PRX. Stew. 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 Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... It's the method that makes it interesting, not just the end result. Maybe it had a little bit to do with our kind of prudery. It's completely a joy. I love that. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. When you meet somebody, talking to them about math is probably not, in general, a great icebreaker. In fact, thinking about that, maybe what the subject needs isn't some genius like the guy in A Beautiful Mind, but some kind of friendly ambassador. Maybe a person like Eugenia Chang. What Eugenia Chang tries to do is convey the elegance and beauty and underlying philosophical principles of math. She's the scientist in residence at the Art Institute in Chicago, where she teaches math to people studying to become painters and sculptors and performance artists, not your typical group of math geeks. And she has published a book called How to Bake Pi. That's P-I, as in geometry. She takes that double meaning further, however, than just the pun, because the book is full of actual recipes she uses to illustrate and explain mathematical concepts. Eugenia. Hello. Hi. Very nice to meet you. Eugenia was visiting New York, so I invited her over to my place to talk about math and to bake one of the recipes in her book. The recipe is for chocolate lava cakes, cupcakes, actually. Woo! Big kitchen, too. Let's sit and talk a little bit before we cook. Okay. Um, so how did you begin baking? I started baking with my mother when I was very, very small, and I loved it because I love cake and cookies and all those dessert things that you're not supposed to eat too much of. But I think my mother learned to do it because my parents moved from Hong Kong uh-huh. to England and they wanted to learn how to do all the very English things. And so they learned how to bake because that's a very English thing. They don't bake much in Hong Kong. It's that's way too hot. You don't want to turn the oven on. So this was an assimilationist thing? I think so, yeah. They were bake? really keen to assimilate and um, huh. pick up British culture. And, and so, okay, baking, math. Uh, I get the, the arithmetical, like, oh, uh, how many tablespoons equals how many fluid ounces? Or, oh, we're going to double this recipe. And because I'm, in my household, good at arithmetic, the children and my wife come to me for to do those equivalents and mm-hmm. calculations. But uh, that's, I mean... That barely seems like math to me. That's it's true, and I wouldn't say that's really math. That's yeah. arithmetic, exactly. as you said. And that's not the aspect of math that I'm talking about right. when I'm talking about math and baking. Right. It's more the creativity of taking some basic ingredients and seeing all the different things you can do with them. Because there are so many desserts you can make with basically the same ingredients. You just put them together in different ways. Right. And math is a bit like that. You take some basic ingredients, numbers or shapes or something, and then you put them together in some fantastic ways and it's really more about the method it's the method that makes it interesting to me not just the end result so if I eat a delicious 
cake or baked good, I really want to know how it turned into that. And I'm fascinated by that process, which is also like the process of doing math, where right. actually it's not just about getting answers. It's about how you put things together and the way that this magic happens when something comes out at the end that's completely different from the things that you put in. So when did you, did you sort of see that there was a connection between these two things? It gradually dawned on me that it was a good way of making a connection with people when I'm teaching them math. And so it started because I was teaching undergraduates. And if you're learning something and you have no emotional connection with it, then it's very hard for it to stick. There's nowhere in your life that you can connect it to. And so when I compare it with food, it gives everyone a way of feeling an emotional connection with it. And so it's not just the analogy, but then it sticks in people's consciousness because they can go, oh, it's that thing about Oreo cookies or something that they can remember more easily than the technical words in math or some some kind of formula. I mean, a lot of my students say that they got turned off math because they had to memorize formulae. And yeah, yeah memorizing formulae is mind-numbing. I mean, unless you think it's like poetry, which sometimes I did when I was little. And as, the, as children are being taught math, it sounds like you perhaps think too often the, the, the idea that math is over here entirely unlike anything creative is, is a mistake. Is it, it is a mistake. And the idea that math is all about things being right and wrong and getting the right answer, I think, is a huge mistake. First of all, because it's not true. But secondly, because it puts some people off. Some people like being able to get the right answer. But if you think it's all about the right answer, then you're going to start hating it if you can't get the right, right answer. And so with my art students, I set projects that are, we do activities in class where there isn't really an answer at all so it's not about getting the right answer or How the wrong answer. it's about exploring the situation yeah and then whatever you discover about the situation is valid it's a shame that when you do research that's what it's really like and yet when you're first having to learn it that's not what it's like um i'll let you uh, finish some of your coffee and then we'll go over to the cooking area of my kitchen fantastic and or bake rather. yeah we're gonna bake oh we're gonna have to bake in american units ah I'm going to put this apron on so that I don't get chocolate all over me. So I've got all the ingredients for one of the recipes uh, from your book. Fantastic. Uh, set out. So the idea of this is um, it's in a chapter, I think, explaining principles and why it's good to know the principles behind things rather than just memorizing a recipe. Right. Because then if you find yourself with a bunch of merry mathematicians in the kitchen, you haven't planned anything. You can just find stuff in your kitchen yeah. and invent something using the basic principles that you know. Yeah. If you understand the principles, then you can mess around knowing which principles you need to stick to, right. and which ones you should, right. you can mess with. And then it, when you can mess around with things, it's so much more fun. If you're just doing things that someone else told you likes right. doing things someone else tells you to do well i don't so this instead of just being a a metal tin cupcake muffin tin this is made out of silicon, silicon. they say it's silicon okay so they turn they pop inside out you can get them out the ah. things out very easily you don't have to grease them i'm much too lazy to grease anything so this is good uh, this is a revelation well, Eugenia, thank you. I'm glad that I've brought you that. You have, yeah. No, I've, 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 I just feel like I've entered the 21st century. Eugenia's recipe called for the ingredients by weight, which is standard in the UK. She started by putting two eggs on the digital scale. I'd never seen anybody weigh eggs before. Well, it's because the principle of cakes is that if you start with an equal weight of every ingredient, really? then it's about right. Yeah. That's a general universal That's a cake general principle? principle of cakes, yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
starting with five ounces of eggs. We weighed out five ounces of self-rising flour, five ounces of sugar, and five ounces of butter. Then we beat it. And I'm going to hold on to the bowl because you you're look dangerous with that electric you're whisk. You're holding on to this. Yeesh. Yeah, I'm going to keep it on low. So you should do it on low when until it's basically incorporated. You can keep going longer than that. Don't be afraid. I'm, you look scared. No. It's just... Yeah, you look scared. And then you can speed it up. Now it's all incorporated. Like mathematician dominatrix. Really. <laughs> uh-huh. Break these eggs in here. Mm-hmm. Second egg mm-hmm. goes in. Uh-oh. Lost some of the white. Shh. No one saw. The bowl, I must say, is a little bit small for the purpose. I know. This is good. I think we'll start putting the flour in before it gets too overbeaten. Okay. Okay. I'm just going to dump the flour put, in. Put, your fi- put our five ounces of flour in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this will be barely okay, I think. I think it's going to fly everywhere, but it's okay. Well, shall I use a spoon then? Mm, no, we'll just watch it fly everywhere. You just end, you'll just end up with flour all over the I'm counter. I'm in charge of cleaning up today, oh, really? so I, I, I want to be careful. Don't you have some minions who will clear it? Oh, dear. Isn't that the producer's job? Well, there, there is that argument. The next part was a little less precise. We just dumped in some cocoa powder. I say more. More. Really? Yeah, more. Wow. We didn't bother weighing the cocoa at all. I just kept adding it until the batter tasted right. Then Eugenia revealed how her lava cakes get their oozing chocolate centers. She puts a half square of sweetened dark chocolate into the center of each little cupcake bucket of batter. So I spent ages, I these um, melting middle chocolate puddings, I ate them in restaurants for a while and I always thought they carefully cooked them to the exact point so that the middle wasn't cooked yet. No. And I tried it so many times I could never get it right and then I just thought, why don't I just shove some chocolate in the middle? Right. Uh, okay, so we've been preheating the oven. That's perfect. At 350 mm-hmm. Good. Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. So it's going to cook till it seems done. Okay. Because, because this tastes delicious even when it's raw. So it's one of those things. All we need it to do is to hold right. its structure so that when we turn it out, it's not just a huge blob. I mean, even if it were a huge blob, it's quite tasty. Really? It's good. Mm. It tastes good. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as we're cooking, and it will tell us uh, when it's done, I guess, now, because we've set the timer. Um, if you had to say, here's the mathematical concept that your cake uh, illustrates, what would that be? It's that when you understand principles, then you can invent things under all sorts of circumstances. And that's why we do math. People think math is about numbers, but we understand the principles behind numbers so that we can work with things that aren't numbers and see if they can be treated in the same so kind of way. So we can understand voters, or we can understand baseball teams. Yeah, or, or... shapes, or t- space-time, or planets, right. or something. So, is it your view, you mathematician, that math is mathematical principles are the underlying principles of all reality or not? I think they are some underlying principles of all reality. I think it would be way overstating it to say that they are the underlying principles. But privately, you mathematicians really think that. What I believe is I love finding what is logical inside a situation, but I also love seeing just beyond that. 
And to me, some of the most beautiful and exciting things are just on that boundary. For example, I am also a pianist and I love classical music and I love analyzing the music that I listen to to see if I can explain logically what it is that's making me love it. But there's always a certain point beyond which you can't analyze it anymore. So I can get down to a certain point and I'll go, but then there's something that makes me cry. I can say, definitely, it's this suspension. Oh, it's that chord change. But why does that chord change make me cry? It just does. And that's the part I love. It's where the logic just meets the inexplicable and gives up. Oh, beep, 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 beep. Is that the oven? Is it on? It is. It smells good. Yes. It looks pretty good. That looks pretty good. Uh, Should we wait here? Well, we should immediately. Uh, These need to be eaten immediately because they have the gooey middle. Oh, really? Yeah. So so we should turn it out. I can see you just you just want to take it out and eat it well, straight off. You know. But we should get a plate. Okay. So if you just tip it out then they they're nice upside down. Okay. Ooh, look, they're it's gooey. Beautiful. Hmm. Mm. The the gooey chocolate part not only oozes out, but it kind of gooifies yeah. the surrounding cake part. Yeah. Eugenia, uh, this has been a greater pleasure than I ever imagined, and it was just a joy. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, and I'm glad to have brought you the joys of silicon, the joys of baking, and of uh, chocolate. Yes, indeed. Uh, Do you want to play some perfectly apt song on my piano upstairs? I'd love to. As we, to to play us out? I'd love to. Delightful conversation? Good. Ooh, very nice. So what will you play? I'm going to play one of my favorite pieces of Bach. Bach is very mathematical and I love playing Bach because it lines my brain cells up. I honestly feel it lines them up ready to do math. And this piece is a piece that has interesting mathematical structure. It's the G minor prelude from book two of the 48 Preludes and Fugues. And it has an interesting braid structure to the voices. There are four voices that wind their way around each other. And when I first studied it, I got confused. So I drew a picture of it. And this is a braid that I now make into pastry on top of a pie, which I call my Bach pie because it's banana and chocolate. So here we go. Great. Eugenia Cheng's book is called How to Bake Pie, an Edible Exploration of Mathematics. And we've got the recipe for those lava cakes at studio360.org. They are incredibly simple to make, but also impressive in their way, like math. From lava cakes to almost every other baked good, there is one thing that I think every baker wants— Something that comes out of the oven warm and tasty and not dry. There's a much better word for that, but it's one of the most reviled in the English language. We find a writer who thinks that word gets a very bad rap. I'm Sadie Stein. I'm a contributing editor at the Paris Review, and my guilty pleasure is the word moist. There is a campaign out there to end the word moist. 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 Let's say it again. Moist. Oh, that word. Moist, 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 moist. I hate to say the word. Moist. Moist. It's, it's a little humid out. Moist, 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 mo
moist? Oh, seriously, stop. I won't use the M word because so many people around this building don't like me to use moist. Here's a look at live. I'm a writer and an editor, too. And I think partially when you have to think about words and synonyms all day long, you develop certain appreciations for words that don't have an alternative or an equivalent. And it's the only thing that describes what it does. This banana bread is deliciously moist. This grotto is moist and mossy. If you look moist up in a thesaurus, you'll find a lot of words, none of which really exactly describe the textural quality. Um, chewy, completely different. Dense. You, you wouldn't say wet. That, that would be horrible. Um, that would be undercooked. In the UK, they actually do have synonyms. They say damp and they say squidgy, which we don't say here. But for a culture that claims to hate this word so much, we've done a really singularly poor job of coming up with any alternative. I think sort of the root of my love for the word moist is that my grandmother, who was not a good cook, she was sort of an actively terrible cook, would make for every single family birthday and celebration this really 50s kind of concoction called wine cake. And it's made from mix. Just mix the yellow part of our marble cake mix batter as usual. And instant pudding. Yes, thank goodness for jello instant pudding. And then you kind of soak it in a sherry syrup. So the end effect is really damp. And increasingly, as I started baking and cooking for myself, it just happened to be the way I like it. And I know that's such a personal thing. For instance, whenever I watch The Great British Bake Off, they will often look for a much drier crumb than I think looks absolutely the most appetizing. It's baked, but it's wet. Yeah. It's quite wet right underneath as well. It's damp. Slight soggy bottom there. When I first started using the internet to look up recipes, I would, just as a matter of course, look up moist banana bread, moist and chewy brownie, moist turkey breast, whatever it was. I was so excited that here we had before us this entire um, internet in, in which we could look up exactly the quality we wanted. And this was what I wanted. And then as often as I found things that match my description, I would find various screeds insulting the word or people talking about how repulsive they found moist and how how the word made them shudder and how it literally made their their the hairs on their arms stand up on end and all this reaction I had never experienced in my life. And I remember I was at a concert on the Lower East Side and this couple started talking about how much they hated the word moist and they were laughing about it and everyone joined in and started kind of picking on it, ganging up on it. And I got kind of upset. I said, well, what would you say instead? And they didn't have an answer. I said, do they want to live in a world where baked goods are dry and flavorless? I mean, I don't. I don't want to live in that world. And then a couple of years ago, I saw that some linguists had done a research study. Why do people hate the word moist? And moist had actually been named 
the most hated word. This, according to science, there's a new study conducted by Dr. Paul Thibodeau. He conducted five experiments over four years with approximately 2,500 participants. Wow. And people who were averse to moist also responded similarly to words such as phlegm, vomit, leading him to believe that the disgust is related in part to the association with bodily functions. It doesn't evoke any disgust in me, but I do think maybe it had a little bit to do with our kind of prudery. I mean, anything that can be interpreted in a sexual way, people start giggling like they're on a prank call. So that might be part of it. And you just don't want to be caught out in the position of of being the person making the unintentional double entendre. Maybe it's kind of sex negative that we hate the word so much. Now when I hear it, I feel a certain defiant protectiveness. I'd always been taught to stand up for underdogs, and this seemed to me like a really easy target. Um, I should say, I don't want to have like a moist handshake or anything like that, but I just want the word to be in regular s- circulation. I want to be able to use it without feeling ashamed. That's the writer Sadie Stein talking about a word that I actually like, too, and and don't feel guilty using or saying. Moist, moist, moist. So, guilty pleasures. I want to hear about yours. It could be a cheesy song, some sappy movie, a passé trend, anything you love but everybody else on Earth seems to hate. Record a voice memo explaining your guilty pleasure, what it is, and why you love it, and send that voice memo to Studio360 at WNYC.org. Coming up, what discolored bird specimens in a museum tell us about human life a century ago. Atmospheric soot was remarkable, and that covered the landscape, and these birds were acting as kind of like filter paper, just picking it up on their feathers and preserving it. An art historian and a scientist walk into a museum. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. When artsy types and scientists get together for a project, it's usually for the artist to make something inspired by a scientific concept. But in Chicago, when an art historian and a biologist got together, they discovered something outside, or a little outside, both of their disciplines. Shane Dubay is the evolutionary biologist, and Carl Foldner is the art historian. They're both getting their PhDs at the University of Chicago. They were photographing bird specimens at the Field Museum in Chicago, and they noticed that the feathers on the birds from like 125 years ago, looked a lot dirtier than the more recent specimens. And they thought not just because those older specimens had been hanging around the museum longer and collecting dust. Dubay and Foldner used software to analyze their photographs of the birds and saw how the dinginess of the plumage correlated to the amount of air pollution at any particular time. Turns out all the new coal-powered factories in the late 1800s were making the air, and thus the birds, dirtier. I wanted to hear about their discovery and their strange bedfellowship. So I invited them in. Shane and Carl, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. 
And Carl, you're 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 the art historian of the of the duo, right? That's right. And Shane, you're the biologist. Yes. Um, so, were you just on a play date together, or how, how did you guys get together? <laughs> because I know people tend to stick to their own disciplines. Yeah, it 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 has turned into an extended play date. I was researching an exhibition on uh, early wildlife photography, so that would mean the 1890s. And I quickly learned that I didn't know much about birds. Right. <laughs> so I was interested in whether these photographs, which to me seemed interesting from an artistic standpoint, but from a contemporary science standpoint, didn't seem like they would have much use. Right. I was interested whether a practicing evolutionary biologist would think these were interesting things. So I sought out Shane to see what what he thought of these, and it sort of went from there. So then you teamed up officially on this project to photograph birds that are preserved at the Field Museum, and you were specifically looking at Midwestern birds, right? Yeah, so we've we focused on Midwestern birds because of the historical importance of the area with burning soft and dirty coals right. from Pittsburgh to Chicago. Uh-huh. And the Field Museum has an incredible citizen science program that during migration, thousands of birds die hitting buildings or right. exhaustion. And volunteers pick up these birds and bring them into the museum where they're then preserved for the future. And uh, the Field Museum has a, has a great collection of modern birds from the region. So we're able to use these modern collections with historical collections. Right. Um, if you look at images of the sky from the late 1800s, ni- early 1900s, like the atmospheric soot, was remarkable, and that covered the landscape, and these birds were acting as it's kind of like filter paper, just wow. picking it up on their feathers and preserving it. So now that you've used these birds and their collateral damage to measure pollution over the last century and a half, is there anything else that you can study using these photographs? <laughs> yeah, so so a natural extension of of our project is, which we had toyed with early on, we wanted to look at evolution through 140 years and how that um, – how we, if we could find signals of that in these specimens. And many of the birds have plumage patches, bright plumage patches that are used for – to attract a mate really. Right. And if females of one species prefer uh, – really bright, large patches on right. the males of that species then, what happens when you just kind of cover that? How interesting. I looked back through some of uh, John James Audubon's diaries right. uh, when he was sketching birds. For and, ki- his, and killing them in some cases. And killing them for his project. And the entry for one of our specimens, the downy woodpecker, uh, he describes uh, collecting some of these downy woodpeckers that were so dark and covered in soot hmm. that they uh, looked like a different species, right? So that he confused them with another type of woodpecker because wow. they were covered in soot. And, and Shane, working with uh, this arty humanist, has that given you any thoughts of, oh, uh, I, I never thought about I could study something this way. Are, are you, or does it not work in that direction? No, it it's, works in that direction as well. And 
I've, I've really learned from him uh, ways to approach inquiry, reading anecdotes, reading right, right. historical accounts in the, in the newspaper, and really getting a feel for what the society during these periods had to say about the environment and what was happening. It sounds like both of you are, are becoming more holistic scholars, sort of doing science in a more old-fashioned way that, that takes in information and insights from all these different disciplines. So bravo for that. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Kurt. I can't look at the rocket launch trophy wives of the astronauts and i won't listen to their words because i like birds Almost every breakup song has some standard elements, defiant lyrics, bold vocals, and a message about being better off without him or her. Some songs, though, are so full of heart and so memorable that they're not just about love gone wrong, but about life in general. To tell the story of one breakup song that has become the anthem of the genre, we've got a writer. My name is Vince Aletti. In 1978 and 79, I was the disco critic at Record World magazine. And the singer. My name is Gloria Gaynor, and I'm an international recording artist and performer. Disco was an underground phenomena for, I'd say, five years before anybody seriously above ground paid attention. It certainly seems that more and more Americans are getting more and more into the disco scene. It was a club phenomena. It was created by DJs as a way of sustaining a whole evening of music uh, by playing records end to end. It brought about a kind of camaraderie that we hadn't seen in club goers. And it was a very positive, upbeat time. Some of the records that were popular around the same time were uh, Chic, Grace Jones, Sylvester, who was one of the most out gay performers at that period, and Donna Summer. Women have always uh, been the strongest vocals in disco. The one thing that disco music never got credit for is the fact that it is the first music ever to bring together people from every nationality, race, creed, color, and age group. I never can say goodbye. No, no, no. Never Can Say Goodbye was Gaynor's first really big hit. But she kind of uh, slipped off the radar at the clubs. The record company had said they were not going to renew my contract. I'd been in hospital. I'd had surgery on my spine. I was thinking about the death of my mother. I was thinking about the fact that I had been paralyzed from the waist down. People were going around the company saying the queen is dead. And there I am laying in hospital wondering what's going to happen with my life hoping to completely survive. And while I was there, the record company called me and told me that they'd gotten a new president over from England and that where I was very popular and that he wanted to, me to record this song called Substitute. Oh, I'll be your substitute. 
heard the song, didn't particularly like it, but I didn't care. They weren't they weren't ending my contract. I still was a recording artist. I was happy to go and do it. I get out to California with the producers and I ask them what's going to be the B-side. And they asked me what kind of songs that I like, what kind of songs that I like to sing. And I said, well, I like songs that are meaningful. I like songs that are strong, that touch people's hearts, that have good melodies. They said, mm-hmm, we think you're the one we've been waiting for to record this song that we wrote two years ago. And they scribbled the words down on a piece of paper and I looked at them and said, what are you, nuts? You're going to put this on the B-side. This is a hit song. This is a hit lyric. It's a timeless lyric. Well, they said, maybe it'll get a chance one day. I'm like, if I have anything to do with it, it's going to get some play. It's going to get noticed now. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong And I grew strong And I learned how to get along So we recorded it, we took it to the DJ at Studio 54 We gave him a stack of them to give to his DJ friends around New York They began to play it People began to request it in the club And then they began to request it on radio Because now they want to hear it on the way home They want to hear it on the way to work and the radio station started calling the record company asking, where is this song that we keep getting requests for? And the record company had to say, which much chagrin, you've already got it. It's on the B-side of that other song. This was a huge comeback for her. And it was also such a strong record in what it said and how people responded to it. There was the sense of real fury in her, but also determination and survival. I think first it was a women's anthem, but it was, you know, around this time that people became aware of AIDS. So... For the gay community, a song called I Will Survive gave people a sense of determination and hope. This song taps into the tenacity of the human spirit and just pulls up from inside of you whatever it is that gives you hope, whatever gives you strength, whatever gives you courage. You tap into that when you hear that song. And I think that's why it lasted and why it's still an anthem. As something that went well beyond the idea of spurning a boyfriend. People want to sing that refrain. You know, I look out at that audience. I know they're going to love this song. I know that it's going to empower them. It's going to inspire them. It's going to uplift them. And that gives me all that I need to go out and perform that song every single time. That song came out right after I was dumped in a big-time way. I Will Survive 
was inducted into the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress this year. And our story was produced by Devin Strolovich for BMP Audio. Coming up, Jacob Collier uses lots of high-tech gizmos to make his amazing layered harmonies. But he assures me... I'm not just a robot. An apparently human Jacob Collier plays live. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Somebody pointed me to this video on YouTube that is a wonderful cover of the great song from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory called Pure Imagination. The screen is split into six squares, like on the opening of the Brady Bunch, but every square is the same guy, Jacob Collier. One, two, three, come with me, up and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. That is now just one of the videos on Jacob's YouTube channel. He's covered lots and lots of familiar pop tunes with that kind of incredibly complex, multi-tracked harmony. And those videos got millions of views and the attention of people like Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock and Quincy Jones, who signed him to a record deal. Now, in a recording, you can have lots of tracks of Jacob on a song, but there's only one Jacob Collier. So how do you perform those intricate multi-part songs live? For him, the answer came from a young engineer at MIT who built him a black box, literally a black box, that is called a harmonizer. There's only one of these in the world, and it was invented by Ben Bloomberg, who's actually sitting over there in the studio, um, who's a grad student at MIT. This instrument essentially takes whatever I'm singing and duplicates that note um, at my command. That's gorgeous. That was uh, Jacob Collier playing and singing Hide and Seek by Imogen Heap. So do you always use this harmonizer when, when you're making music? This digital simulation of my voice is only ever used for live performances. In, in, in the studio, uh-huh. I, I sing every single voice independently so that I have all of the control over dynamic range and things. Well, that's good to know. You're not just a robot. I'm not just a robot. Um, what, was your, what was your musical education? So I'm very much self-taught. I was brought up by a family of musicians. So I suppose music was essentially a second language. You know, it was 
it was here's how to explore how something feels in a key. You know, how does D major feel? How does B flat minor feel? And there was a piano at home? There was always a piano at home. That was the kind of centerpiece of the house. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose it was very much something that was not a technical introduction, but an emotional introduction, you know. And I was encouraged to think about keys and navigations toward keys and things like this and uh, songs and things in this emotional way. I, I suppose that was my fundamental education. But And did you say, well, mom, dad, how, how did they do that on that song I'm hearing on the radio? A little bit. You know, it was more that I was I was exposed to things and then given a chance to sort of walk in and find my own opinion there. Um, I always explored on the piano and I, I suppose I built a framework of understanding based upon what I'd heard, which was strong enough to take into more listening that was more challenging. And essentially, it was a, it was a process of gathering information towards a, a kind of central point of fascination. I, I'm, I'm such a sort of avid explorer. Was music always central to your life or at 12 or 13 or 14 or whatever did you say nah, enough with that mom and dad i'm gonna go play video games <laughs> yeah um music was always central to my life and and that's not to say that nothing else existed but yeah. it was um it was i mean you know this room in my house full of instruments my room has been my room for 22 years huh and and uh, it, it so you're like raised in a magic. lab to do to be who you are yeah it, <laughs> it was like a sort of treasure trove but you know i, I never set out to right to expand upon this in terms of a career. I just set out to have fun and, and enjoy music and, and keep on exploring. Did your parents or other adults at some point say, kid, you're really talented? <laughs> um, you know, my arm was never twisted and I was never encouraged to do things that I didn't want to do. And I suppose that that's a nice way to form um, a musician who can work on his own terms. Uh-huh. You became, you started to become known to the world beyond your family uh, five years ago when you were 17, yeah. performing and recording these, these multi-vocal, multi-instrumental videos that you put up to YouTube. Just doing this into a webcam, was that, did that feel awkward? It, it's a slightly strange sensation at first, but in the end, it's one that you can really enjoy. It's as though I'm performing for an audience, but it's, it's in stop time. So I have up to you know, 50 video takes in, in, in some videos happening at once. And so I need to be a sort of mosaic designer. And think about where to, where to place these That's interesting. things. The and, mosaic uh, analogy. Yeah. Um, when you hear a song, are there particular things like a checklist of, oh, I'd like to try to see if I could do that? You know, I think listening to songs for the purpose of arranging them is, is obviously a different thing from listening to songs for fun. Yeah. Um, certain features would stand out. You know, for example, a melody which is simple and strong enough to be completely and utterly reinvented is, is definitely an asset. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, repetition is, is, is also good because it, it means that you can state something and then, you know, then you can invent it from the, from the point of view of having stated it as, as it is first. Right. And apart from that, the, that repetition, which I understand, what else about a particular song makes you think, oh, that, I, that's protoplasmic in a way that I can reinvent? Good word. Um, <laughs> Thank you. You know, I, I think, you know, mainly it's, it's songs that I love that I'm drawn towards uh-huh. um, and – I think if someone by now had quantified what it is that makes somebody love a song, I think yeah. it, it would be game over. <laughs> yes. Um, he or she would be rich, among other rich, things. Rich, <laughs> yeah. Rich to say the least. One of my favorites that you, you did is uh, Don't You Worry About a Thing, uh-huh. which I remember Thank you. hearing when it was new, when I was not much uh, younger than you. And I, so I want to play a little bit of Stevie's original. Don't you worry about a thing. Don't you worry about a thing. Standing on the side when you check it out, and you get off 
It's kind of Stevie at his best, you know. He's exploring, combining different genres together. Um, but there's this melody in this song which goes... Right. And that, I mean, for me, as, as a sort of reharmonizer, was it was extremely attractive because that's just one note going down in semitones. Because I'll be standing on the side when you check it. Doo-doo-doo. Oh, Extraordinary, and it, it is almost like if if one were going to uh, distribute a demonstration of chord changes at their max, that would be <laughs> yeah. a good piece of so many chord changes. It, really, yeah. And do do as you're doing that, do you discover things that you haven't heard before? Like, whoa, that that's a thing I just stumbled upon that is actually new. Yes, absolutely. Actually, the the, the second chord of that descending sequence contains a microtone, which is a note which doesn't exist on the piano. Um, and this is not something I, I walked into it thinking I was going to use, but it, I ended up walking out with, with one, and that was really, really fun, actually. Ah, thrilling, I would think. Yeah. Uh, your music and your career has been made possible by the digital age. You have a thing uh, that some parents, if they see it uh, on their children's computers, might be alarmed. It says, I harm you. Yes. Explain what I, hashtag I harm you is. Uh, so uh, the I harm you campaign was actually something – which was part of my, my, my Patreon campaign, which was the campaign with which I raised the money to make my album. There was one pledge amount, which uh, gave people the chance to send in any melody, a sort of 15-second melody, and I would send it back fully harmonized. It's crazy. You know, I've received over, over 100 melodies from people all around the world. Here is a guy called David Lynn Grimes, who lives in Alaska, who sent you this clip of himself singing a little tune. Brother of the wind... Can we hear you holler, dancing in the smoke with the river daughter? Water, water, water. Mm. He, he's one of your patrons, and you yeah. spend how long harmonizing with it? You know, it, it depends. Um, you know, the, the actual harmonization process is, is, is fairly short, you know, maybe like five or ten minutes or something. But then the recording of the harmonization um, can take a little longer than that, you know, I guess between half an hour and an hour. I know if I go over an hour, I'm, I'm really procrastinating. Yes. Um, it's making David sound the best he can possibly sound. Brother of the wind, can we hear you holler? Dancing in the smoke, in the smoke with, the river daughter. with the river daughter. Water, water, water. Mm. I love that. And, and I can see how it would be a pleasure for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's completely a joy. Uh, another musician who was fascinated by, maybe obsessed with harmony, uh, is Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Do you, do you think of Brian Wilson as a kind of kindred spirit? Yes, I do in some ways. You know, he, he, he wrote this song called In My Room, um, after which my album is named. And it's about this idea of having, a, you know, having one's own space where one can be inventive and create and have secrets and things. And, and this is nice. Uh, well, will you play In My Room for us now? Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah.
Jacob Collier's album, In My Room, is out now. That's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes... Jenny Lawton. Andrew Adam Newman. Louis Mitchell. Krista Ripple. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Matt Frassica. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. Gabriella Cortez. Judy Gu. Jackie Harris. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks for listening. Studio 360's series on creativity and science is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information is online at sloan.org. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360... I think often we think about racism as just a feeling people have in their hearts, and racists are just bad people. A novelist rethinks discrimination. But my thing, my question was sort of like, okay, but what about good people who are racist? I talk with the author Britt Bennett next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.